Welcome to the Abundant Edge Podcast. You're in the right place for all things regenerative living, ecological restoration, permaculture, and natural building. I'm your host, Oliver Gaucher. In this show, it's my job to interview leaders, innovators, and rebels on the cutting edge of their fields as we look for solutions to our generation's most urgent challenges and share these techniques and information so that you can join us in creating a healthy and abundant world for everyone. So let's get started. Without a doubt, the most important mission of our lifetimes will be regenerating this planet and creating a new culture based on care and stewardship for all life. But it can be hard to know where to start. After more than 150 episodes of speaking to leaders and innovators in the regenerative fields around the world, and working with clients and organizations to help them reach their regenerative goals, I've compiled many lists of essential skills and steps that anyone can take today to begin their journey towards a brighter future for themselves, their families and communities, and for the ecosystems that support them. Every Monday, to get your week started off right, I'll send you a new regenerative skill that you can develop and expand on in your own life right away. What's more is that I'm creating a community of skill builders like you who are sharing their results and stories of success to inspire you towards greater action. You can sign up right now in the show notes for this episode or on the homepage at AbundantEdge.com. Start your week off right by building your skills for a regenerative future. All right, hey everybody, welcome back to another episode in the ongoing series on regenerative agriculture. Up until now, I've spoken with growers and producers on the cutting edge of profitable regenerative land-based enterprises and management techniques in rural areas. But there's also a growing movement to produce food closer to where the heaviest concentration of people are, and that's in cities. While the basics of growing food are fairly universal, there are a lot of unique challenges that farmers in the city face that just aren't present in rural or even suburban areas. And to get an experienced point of view on urban farming, I reached out to Michael Abelman to learn more. Now, Michael Abelman is the co-founder and director of Soul Food Street Farms and one of the early visionaries of the urban agriculture movement. Michael has worked as a commercial organic farmer for the last 45 years and is the founder of the nonprofit Center for Urban Agriculture. He has also created high-profile urban farms in both Watts and Goleta, California, as well as Vancouver, British Columbia. Michael is the author of numerous books like From the Good Earth, On Good Land, Fields of Plenty, Street Farm, and his latest titled Farm the City, in which he outlines actionable steps on how to plan, grow, and market your crops in an urban environment. The best part of this is that listeners of this show will have the opportunity to win a free copy of Michael's book, Farm the City. Here's how it works. Just leave a review of the Abundant Edge podcast on iTunes and take a screenshot of your review. Send it to info at AbundantEdge.com along with the address where you'd like to receive your mail, and I'll send the book to the first person that I receive an email from. If you live outside the U.S. or Canada, you can just send the email and we'll send you a digital copy. And if you don't win this time, don't worry, I'll be giving away a ton more volumes from New Society Publishers this season, so stay tuned each week for your chance to win more books. And if you already left a review for us on iTunes, you can share this episode on your preferred social media platform, take a screenshot, and send an email just the same. These steps really help me to reach a larger audience with this information and our show's message of actionable steps that anyone can take towards ecological regeneration, so I really appreciate all of you who have been helping me to get the word out. I'll look forward to your emails and sending those books out soon. So now I'll hand things over to Michael Abelman. Hey, Michael, thanks so much for taking the time to be on the podcast today. How are you doing? 
Good, great, Oliver. Thanks for having me. Hey, it's my pleasure. Now, look, I've got so many things that I'd love to ask you about, and the world of urban farming is quite deep. So what do you say we just jump into the questions? Sounds great. All right, so to get us started off, could you tell us a little bit about your personal background and how you got started in urban farming? Because when you got started, this was really kind of an unknown concept to a lot of people. Yeah, I was um, farming in, in uh, California uh, and uh, uh, delivering uh, once a week doing a farmer's market in Santa Monica in Los Angeles. Uh, and uh, along the way, I would visit um, some of the neighborhoods in Los Angeles, uh, uh, in particular called Watts. Uh, and um, I noticed that um, there were a number of things that, that occurred to me in that neighborhood. There's abandoned lots. There were throngs of people without work. And there was virtually no access to fresh food. Uh, the, the supermarkets had left. The only food that was available was um, what you could get from a liquor store or a 7-Eleven. And so I thought, you know, if... if um, at all these elements together, I thought, well, what if we could create viable economic enterprises based on food production, abandoned lots, employing local people and providing fresh food? We would essentially be achieving what um, my friend Wendell Berry calls solid and addressing a number of issues in one elegant solution. And so I formed a nonprofit organization, which I called the Center for Urban Agriculture which, you know, when I would use those words, urban and agriculture in the same sentence in um, the early 1980s, people looked at me quite strangely. Uh, it's to me today that there's an, actu uh, an international movement around that. But we, um, we formed that organization and we did our first project um, on three acres uh, next to the Jordan Downs housing project in, in Watts. Um, a neighborhood that made downtown east side where I currently work in urban agriculture looked like Beverly Hills. So we established, uh, uh, we, we loaded our farm tractors <laughs> onto a semi truck uh, and um, moved them down to this uh, neighborhood in Los Angeles, a neighborhood known for uh, its extreme um, and violent and challenges and we removed I don't know it was like 25 tons of trash and rubble dead animals and uh, cleaned the site up and uh, uh, began growing production levels of, of uh, fruits and vegetables um, and I think that um, this was a time when I was fairly young and naive and uh, and I you know, hadn't really thought deeply about what it really means to help uh, and how we do that well. And since discovered what a dangerous thing it is to think you know what other people need. Sure. <laughs> and I think that experience in Watts, while we were successful agriculture, we had a lot to learn socially. Um, and um, while that project to some degree continues uh, we, in the end, had to turn it over to um, the people who should really have been running it from the beginning. That was, the, that was those who were living in that neighborhood. Sure, sure. And was that one of the major things that you learned that kind of led to greater success in the other places where you opened farms since then? Well, I think that um, 
it's an important thing. I mean, I think um, uh, that, you know, my work in urban agriculture is in a tied uh, to its potential impact on communities that are underserved. Um, and I, um, um, to really understand <laughs> and to really dig deeply uh, into one's intentions and you know, achieve is important. And to make those projects uh, well-rooted and grounded in the community itself so that, you know, I'm, you know, I'm not the one doing it for someone else, in other words. Sure, sure. So, look, let's start and talk about some of the unique differences that farming in the city opposed to what we're much more familiar with, which is, you know, rural and in some cases suburban farming. What are some of the major differences that you need to take into account when shifting environments like that? One of the things, of course, you know, there's a number of elements. Um, uh, space is huge. I mean, the value of uh, urban land, especially on the coast, is so extreme that no landowner, whether it be uh, the municipal, the city, or private landowners, can ever uh, afford to divide that land for very long. So you have to have a system that addresses that. Are you able to move on short notice? The other issues, of course, are most soils, every urban area in the world, are too contaminated to grow in. So you have to address that issue. And, and you know, another major challenge is that most urban areas do not have the uh, skill level. There are not individuals to have the kind of um, agricultural production skill that might exist in peri-urban or rural areas. And, you know, I success is in the project that I currently run, Soul Food Street Farms in Vancouver, has been that we have, I think, to, a, to some degree, successed those three very significant issues. And so when you're coming up with, I guess, a business plan for starting up an enterprise in the city like this, like you said, some of those challenges that you just mentioned, like the high cost of real estate, um, the lack of maybe farm skilled labor in the area, how do you sort of compensate for those in the business planning stage? Well, to address the physical challenges, for example, of contaminated soil or pavement, which is present in every city, and the high land values, we um, again, uh, you know, address this issue by solving for designed a uh, a box. It it appears very simple. It's had a lot of thinking gone into it. That both isolates the growing medium from either contaminated soil or pavement, but also allows us to move on short notice. It has forklift tabs. It's stackable, nestable, uh, destructible, um, and um, so. You know, that box itself allows us to grow on a production scale um, uh, by, without um, having concerns about food safety uh, and also allows us to move if a developer needs us to move. Um, the skill level is a different thing. I mean, that's, um, you know, required. I think that, that to some degree every uh, urban agricultural enterprise, and I use the word agriculture very specifically. I'm not talking about gardening here. 
the farms that we run in Vancouver are 25 tons of food annually on a few acres of pavement. Mm -hmm. They are highly skilled enterprises mm -hmm. that are serving restaurants and stores and farmers markets. And so the skill level that is required to do that on that scale and really agricultural is uh, often something that might have to be drawn from somewhere else, at least in the development phase. Um, and there's a lot of training uh, that is required to get local residents up to speed in, in order to run and manage those farms over. To some degree, Oliver, that's why I, I um, uh, this last book, uh, Farming the City, um, which was kind of a, on the heels of the, the book that I wrote about the, well, the spiritual um, underpinnings of the project we started in Vancouver, the Urban Agriculture Project. Mm. Yeah, I really like that section for uh, at the end of the book on like human capital and resources and, and how much that plays into these factors. And so we just talked about a lot of the disadvantages of trying to get established with a farming enterprise and agricultural enterprise in the city. Let's talk about some of the advantages, some of the, uh, the ways that it can actually be uh, helpful to have access to a market like that so, so close by. Well, yeah, I mean, I, you know, the, the, of course, is that you are uh, not just near, but in the heart of a, of a great marketplace. Uh, you're surrounded by eaters when you're farming the city. And as, as we all know, most food is shipped in to, uh, you know, every city in the world is, ser is serviced by an armada of planes and ships and trains and trucks that are bringing food in, in a system which is, in many ways, very precarious and uh, not sustainable. Um, I don't ever suggest that we're going to, to um, feed our cities entirely from within our cities, and I think that's an illusion. Um, I do think that we need to talk about what is the primary benefit of, of farms that exist within said uh, a great one in addition to having that market is that uh, is educational. I think it's really important for urban dwellers to be able to literally see, possibly participate in food production in the city because many people have become so disconnected from it. I think there are other advantages. I mean, um, uh, as crazy as it sounds, we find that production of food in the city and the way we do it benefits from the urban heat sink. <laughs> uh, I imagine. You have uh, a bit of a microclimate there, huh? We, yeah. Products are always accelerated and faster and, and coming to fruition. Um, I think that, um, but I do think that um, Education is a really important, and modeling uh, is, are, are incredibly important pieces of, of these that urban agriculture uh, can provide. Um, in the case of our project in Vancouver, Soul Food Street Farms are now running a, a fairly substantial orchard. And we've noticed that there are ecological services that orchard is providing um, habitat for insects and small animals, and birds, hmm. um, shade that it provide the shade that it provides, you know the um, uh, just the 
the general atmosphere that is created uh, uh, socially, ecologically, otherwise, uh, within and below those trees. It's really quite amazing what we've seen. Hmm. All right, so let's shift gears here and talk a little bit about how you first go about selecting the land in a city that might be appropriate to get an enterprise that, that actually makes money. What are some of the key things that you look for and what are some of the things that discount the options for you? Well, one of the things is that uh, on our scale, and I, I have to continuously repeat this because the first thing that is critically important considering an urban agriculture enterprise is to really try to come to terms with what's the, what's the point? What's the purpose? What is your goal? Is it employment? Is it education? Is it production of food? Um, is it a gathering place for the neighborhood? What are you trying to achieve? And in what order of priority? Because that, in a sense, determines the land you're looking for and the establishment setup uh, scale of the enterprise. In our case, it's been the jobs. Mm -hmm. uh, we are a social enterprise that is established to provide training and employment to individuals who are um, uh, dealing with long-term addiction, material poverty, and as such, the jobs are critical. They provide a sense of belonging and purpose and income. And uh, our scale, because jobs are important, has to be significant. So if your scale is significant, then the size of the spaces that we require have got to be a minimum, at the very least, of half an acre and preferably nowadays we look for more of a, an acre or larger so if that's the scale we're looking for on uh, for our operation it may not be the scale for every operation that makes it kind of, there aren't a lot of large um uh plots of land in our coastal cities of that scale and so we lots which as it turns out is not a bad thing because the any contaminated soil is capped it's easy to work on those parking lots especially with there is that added heat potential um, we look for a parking lot or an area that's large enough that is not going to be shaded by surrounding buildings we try to understand the neighborhood that it's located in will there be issues with vandalism or theft and how will we address those neighbors like to eat for example how can we engage the neighborhood in our process? Um, you know, we look at things like access to water, um, potential contamination from other sources, for example, pollution from traffic in the neighborhood. Um, so all of these things, you know, I have a whole list of, of both challenges and um, advantages of farming in the city, in, uh, in um, but all these things have to be taken as kind of a matrix. Uh, uh, and the matrix has to be viewed through the lens of your ultimate goal. Yeah, defining those goals early on is, is really key. And that's just about any enterprise that I've learned from, from this point. Let's talk about now how you decide on what to grow, especially in such reduced spaces and for for the specific market within your city? Yeah, well, I think in most situations, even on the scale we're operating on, 
uh, the scale we operate on relative to rural or peri-urban production is still quite small. When the, the smaller the scale, the more important every leaf, every root, every fruit becomes economic viability of, of that farm. And so selecting the products that will create the most value within the smallest amount of space is important. And so again, um, uh, you know, I can't dictate that in, because it depends on where it is you're farming, who your market is, um, uh, you know, what your skill level is. That's really important because, you know, certain crops require a lot more skill than others. Um, you know, you wouldn't start off growing white asparagus or French melons, for example, as a bee. Um, you'd start off doing, you know, maybe greens and radishes and things like that. So again, the principle is what can I produce with my skill level in this small space that's going to make the most productivity uh, and economic sense? Yeah, yeah, there's always that kind of breakdown that you have to go through to assess which are going to be worth it depending on the goals that you set for yourself earlier. Now, product marketing is something that you cover really well in this book, and I love the creative uh, solutions that you outline. Can you go through a couple of these with me here, starting with farmers markets? Because I know this is how you started even before you began with urban farming. What are some of the advantages and some of the things to consider if this is going to be one of your major outlets for, for marketing? Well, I think first of all, general principle, and I do, I, I, I uh, spend a fair amount of um, space in this new book kind of on this subject. And, and very, for a specific, um, most people when they start in any kind of agricultural enterprise, may sometimes not realize that products is only the first step. Uh, and you can do that really well or learn to do that really well. But if you have not identified where those products are going to be distributed or sold or for what price or you know how, um, then uh, you're missing a very important in completing the cycle. So I like to say that before the first seed is planted, I, I should know where that product is actually going to be going. Mm -hmm. um, and with a farmer's market, a farmer's market is an ideal consideration for an urban farm. Obviously, the markets are in the, um, it's a natural market. It's right there. It's easy to enter into on different scales. But when I'm planning my crop plan in the late fall or winter and ordering my seeds, I am previewing my display at the farmer's market in April, May, June, July, August, and September. I'm actually seeing it in my mind's eye at the moment I'm actually ordering the seeds. Mm -hmm. And I think this is important because I think that um, the ability to pre-visualize every step of the way is a um, great source of both comfort and success. <laughs> um, and the markets, um, uh, in my experience, are successful 
when you have built your product line, your crop mix, uh, in a way that those products relate to each other and relate to it, the, the kinds of man needs, uh, culture, et cetera, of the farmer's markets in which you're going to operate. So, you know, I, uh, and then, you know, as the season progresses and um, those products come to fruition, um, each market day, I actually have designed my stand and how it's going to be laid out in advance of arriving at the market. I know exactly where things are going to go, uh, alternating colors, putting foods together in guilds, you know, the tomatoes and the basil and the garlic in some relationship, um, helping people make choices by um, creating relation crops in a sense. Mm. Um, and so I think, you know, it, there is a, and then of course, providing endless samples, um, you know, no, having, offering recipes, engaging, using the farmer's market as almost like theater where you're constantly in motion, um, uh, you know, bringing the, the farm and it's, productivity into people's world uh, by telling stories and explaining how things were grown, talking about the varieties and where they came from, um, exposing people to the incredibly rich world of, uh, and, of food and how it comes to them. Yeah, absolutely. There's endless things that you can display and educate just around those. Um, let's talk about the advantage of having a retail place on your site since you're already in the center or very close to the center of your ideal market there. How has it worked out for you being able to sell directly to customers from the farm itself? You know, I think that um, obviously a private market or a pop-up market at your actual growing site is wonderful for many reasons. Certainly the efficiency of it makes a lot of sense. Uh, People can come from the neighborhood they can buy the food where they can actually see it growing. Uh, all these relationships come together, but it takes a lot longer to develop a on-site market or a pop-up market than joining uh, an existing farmer's market where you have a broader po- uh, customer base, uh, an existing kind of um, attraction and advertising on the part of a broader group of people. Um, uh, and so it's that's a little bit more of a long term. If you know your security on that side is going to be um, around for a while, if the neighborhood is already to some degree engaged in what you're doing, if you're giving tours, um, um, because you won't get the numbers of people that you'll get at a farmer's market. However, I do think it's a fabulous thing from the pr- perspective of efficiency in uh, co- connectivity and context. Yeah, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, and let's touch on one more option here that I know a lot of, especially market grower types, uh, have experimented with in the past and then are doing now, which is CSAs. Uh, did you start out doing those in, with your urban farms, or is that something that developed later on? I started uh, the what is or was, I should say, the longest-running CSA on the West Coast back in the 1980s. (laughs) This was a movement that had uh, come to 
the U.S. from um, Europe and Japan. Uh, Robin, Robin Van Ann in um, Massachusetts, I believe, adopted this concept and really um, spread it around. She's no longer with us, but um, and I thought, wow, what a great idea! What a great way to create a stronger bond and relationship between uh, the growers and eaters. Um, and you know, in California, when I was doing it, I, we had mixed results early on. To be frank, I mean, we people did not want necessarily to have their weekly produce chosen for them based on what was available at the farm. Um, and this is a system on a weekly basis. People pay up front for a year's supply of products. They get a weekly box of products that are what's in season. They don't have choice. Um, they um, pick up that, those products and, you know, and then uh, use whatever is in the box or not you know and i found that people were you know not used to this concept it took a while for them to kind of come to terms with it and uh, of course now this is a big movement all around the world um and that the most successful csas uh now are those that where people have can actually select and what they get yeah, I could see that kind of going both ways, people preferring the selection, but also really the building of connection and, I guess, loyalty to those programs, too. There's pros and cons to each. Now, let's talk a little bit about some of the other marketing tactics that you go over in the book, such as uh, value-added products. What sort of advantages have you found in processing or adding other types of value to the products that you would otherwise sell in their raw form? One of the things that happens on any farm and, and uh, is that there are um, uh, percentages of every crop that are not cosmetically perfect or have uh, other issues or um, uh, not saleable uh, directly, but in a processed form are quite, perf quite, quite wonderful. Uh, you know, we're dealing, you know, everybody's uh, acutely aware now of the issues around food waste. And there is a fair amount of um, waste uh, in quotation marks on farms. I, in the context of most farms, I, I don't ever consider to be any waste because whatever is not used ends up back in the compost and, and returning in, in a, in, as part of the fertility. You know, when you have put uh, months of work into producing a crop and for whatever reason that crop is unsaleable um, you already have there is already embodied energy built into that product but you would like to get some value out of it and so you know strawberries as an example you know um, in a particular week maybe the market is not strong you're left with you know 40 or 50 cases of strawberries uh, that fruit at that stage that is not saleable at the market or to any wholesaler or could can be processed into jam or jelly you know and um, uh, and probably many other things could be fruit leather um, uh, could be frozen um, 
and sold later. And so by doing that, by, by processing um, those strawberries, not only have you saved and preserved the embodied value energy that you've put into that product, but you actually increase that value um, by processing it, putting it into a jar, labeling it. Um, it now has more value. You have added value. So I think it's a great strategy um, to stabilize one's market and to allow you to ride through the ups and downs of either conditions that occur that make for unsaleable product or uh, saturated markets, et cetera. It allows you to, to stabilize those perishable items and be able to sell them over a long period of time. And it adds value products that um, were previously unsaleable. So are you at the point with certain products that you expect a certain amount to need to be processed in this manner? Or is it really just a reaction to fluctuations in the market or when you can't sell the things at the price or at the quality that you would like to in their raw form? Well, we try to do our crop planning uh, in a way that the... Um, that any potential losses are minimized. Uh, and the, the, as your skill level improves over the years, your losses go down as well. Um, but in any farm situation, no matter how long you've been doing it, how much skill you have, how well you've planned, the, the quantity you're growing relative to the market you know is dependable, you're still gonna have, um, I mean, this is a biological system uh, uh, impacted by numerous um, unforeseen, et cetera, that eventually you're going to have products you can't sell. And so I don't, um, there are farms that are entirely everything they grow being processed. Um, but we try to cut those, uh, you know, that potential down to its lowest point. Um, and um, uh, we're not geared, uh, at least at Soul Food Street Farms, towards uh, growing specifically for a processing market, uh, in part because the access to commercial kitchens that is required or someone to do that processing for you is um, expensive and not as easily. Yeah, that makes sense. All right, so... Moving now to kind of the importance of building relationships with your clients. Tell me where the importance of, of having a story comes into that. Well, I think the story is really always important. Uh, it doesn't matter where you are, urban, rural, um, uh, what product, you, um, you know, um, putting a face on the products you grow and uh, making a connection between the people who are going to be eating them and the farm and the people who are doing the farming. Um, rebuild that kind of um, uh, complex community of relationships that we once had <laughs> um, between, uh, you know, the eaters and the farmers is um, really important. And there's no better way to do it than by creatively uh, telling your story. 
Um, and that can be done in a lot of ways. It can be done through pictures, through films, through social media, through um, displays at your farmer's market, or through your personal presence at the places where those foods are being distributed at the, at the farmer's market or elsewhere. You know. um, it can be done by bringing people to your farm to give tours or ha hosting dinner or other events. Um, all of these things we've, of course, been doing for a lot of years and we're always reinventing ourselves. Um, but the story is important. Who are you? Why are you doing this? Um, you know, who's, who, are, who makes up your staff? Um, soils like you're working with. Why are the strawberries so sweet this week, but incredibly small? Um, uh, you know, um, all these amazing little subtle details that those of us who are doing the work of farming, granted to some degree, uh, or, or see on a daily basis, um, become incredibly rich components involved with this work, and they, they want to hear about it. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, from so many people that I've talked to, both through this podcast, through my own life and working on farms and having started one myself in the past, it seems like people really connect not only with, you know, the quality of the product, but like you said, the story behind it, how these people came to produce what they have and hearing from, like you said, the people who work with these systems every day and see the fluctuations and the variables and can explain it and can, can kind of teach at the same time. Uh, I've always seen that like really translate into customer loyalty and a deeper level of connection that keeps people coming back. Now, all of these things that we just talked about kind of factor Absolutely. into how you might start to price your products. Can you give me an idea of some of the other factors that you need to consider when coming at the proper price for what you want to sell, what you're making? Well, that's a, <laughs> that's a big question. I mean, I like to say that pricing, which I believe was your question, um, yes. is, um, you know, it's... Uh, a little bit of art and a little bit of science uh, and at the same time neither of both <laughs> and all of all, all of each um, you know it's um, it's kind of one of those things that requires almost a weak buck um, uh, ability to take into account a, a whole complexity of, um, uh, you know, how much production of a particular product is there? How much production do you have and how much does everybody else have? What's what you're selling at a particular moment? Because that can vary even from week to week, depending on conditions, you know. Um, you know, uh, how much do you have to move at a particular moment? Where are you selling it, and who else is selling into that market? Um, and on and on. And then at a certain point, there is a decision that one has to make that is uh, part of your um, self-respect, if you will. Sure. I mean, I don't think there's any value. There is no value, in fact, in being the cheapest. Uh, because when you're the cheapest, 
um, you often are um, ripping off every link in the chain, all the way down to the land, people doing the work, etc. There's also no, um, there's no honor being the most expensive necessarily, unless I should qualify, unless everyone around you has um, experience with the desire to value the work they have done or to properly value their products and all that has gone into them. If it's a, for example, a new market, if you're, if you're at the farmer's market and, you know, everyone has just started, they don't understand those values, but there's certainly no value, no honor in most expensive for, for the sake of being the most expensive. Mm -hmm. I think that you really have to understand what um, has gone into every aspect of the production production of a particular product. And I think that uh, that involves, uh, can involve some pretty serious thinking, uh, what we would call an enterprise budget, where you've really looked at every stage, every single piece, you know, the cost of the seeds and the, the soil uh, amending and improvement that was required for that crop, you know, how much labor went into it from the way through the end, you know, um, a whole range of things. And then you have to balance that against what the market will hold and will handle. Um, and, and whether you're in a position to, you know, where the, the volume of product you produced can be um, held at a certain price. So there, it's, like I say, it's neither art nor science, but it's both. No, it sounds like it's quite a reactionary thing and you need to have your finger on the pulse of a lot of what's going on in order to put the prices where they should be or how they, like you said, value every link in that chain to get it there as well. Now, how do you want to see urban farming grow and evolve in the years to come? And what are some of the important factors that you think are going to be necessary to achieving this? I think the most important thing for me is that people, uh, all of us, uh, have a kind of um, a realistic rather than a romantic view of urban agriculture is and what it can do and where it fits into the broader food system. I, you know, I hear all the time people looking at urban agriculture as, as I think I might have mentioned earlier on, as uh, somehow that we're going to. Uh, feed our cities entirely from within our cities. And I think that's an unreasonable and romantic idea. Not going to happen. Um, I think a more intelligent conversation is how does urban agriculture fit into a broader integrated food system that includes rural agriculture, peri-urban, and urban? What is appropriate to grow where? And, um, and what is the you know, because of the same spatial limitations and physical limitations of urban agriculture, um, what um, is ultimate and most um, important role in the food system? You know? Um, you know, these are questions I think we need to have in a conversation um, that involves looking at the broader system rather than urban agriculture as an isolated um, piece that I think make uh, for a healthier um, set of values and decisions and relationships um, 
and I also think that we need to, in respect for myself and all my colleagues who have been a lot of years of their life, um, in my case, 43 years, developing these uh, agricultural skills that word agriculture lightly. A lot of my colleagues roll their eyes when uh, urban agriculture, the word agriculture is used to describe somebody's front yard, you know, garden bed, you know. Uh, it's in my view the garden scale um, uh, growing is incredibly important and may in the end become our salvation <laughs> mm. um, for many reasons. It localizes it, and it's really where fruits and vegetables should be produced. But um, but the skill level uh, to be a farmer and to be operating agriculturally is quite complex and like any other highly refined profession usually a minimum of 10 years to really begin to feel like you're developing some level of mastery and so as <laughs> such i the words is important you know <laughs> um you know so i encourage people to use the language carefully and respectfully yeah for sure now, before I let you go, can you tell our listeners how they can get in contact with you and find the book, Farm the City, as well as all of the other books that you've put out? You've been quite prolific. Well, <laughs> that's a good question. <laughs> well, I have, um, I mean, I have a couple, diff three different websites that I'm involved with, although I, I suspect all of them need to be frequently updated. One is the Soul Food Street Farms website. Um, which is, uh, by the way, soul food is spelled S-O-L-E-F-O-O-D, not S-O-U-L. Um, so um, uh, that is um, Soul Food Farms, I believe, S-O-L-E-F-O-O-D, farms.com. Uh, our family farm, the, the uh, rural farm that my wife and I run on Salt Spring Island, is called Foxglove Farm, and that's Foxglove, F O X G L O V E Farm B C dot com. Is in Boise dot com. Uh, and then I have a website which um, addresses more of my teaching and public speaking and books, uh, which is michaelabelman.com, and that's Michael, M I C H A E L A B L E M A N dot com. Um, and um, you know, I, uh, I'm i not going to give out my email. <laughs> no, I wouldn't Although, you. Um, <laughs> That's a good I idea. Somebody looks more diligently, they can find it. Uh, but I would really encourage people, the book is called Farm the City. It's being published by New Society. Um, and I would encourage people to check that out as well as my last book, which is, as I mentioned, kind of the story of the people we work with and the spiritual story of soul food street farms called street farm growing food jobs and hope on the urban frontier and that's available through chelsea green so um, i i encourage you to i think both those books are good companions uh, because i think without the understanding the philosophical underpinnings of a project it's um the the physical how to do that project, it becomes meaningless. That's all I have to say. Okay. 
<laughs> no, no, fair enough. That's great. Um, well, thank you so much for making the time today, Michael. It was a pleasure to talk to you. I got a lot out of this book. Oh, I really um, appreciate it. Yeah, I mean, I've I've been involved in so many different types of farming ever since I started working both massive industrial farms and small scale permaculture ones, both working, designing and managing. And I actually learned a whole bunch of things that I didn't know from this book. Uh, and I really recommend that people check it out. Oh, that's very nice. Uh, thank you so much, Oliver. And, and I, I appreciate you taking the time to speak with me. Hey, no, the pleasure is all mine. Hey, let's stay in touch. Um, I'll look forward to, I assume it'll be like, what, six months before you come out with another book based on your track record? <laughs> oh, no, it takes me a lot longer than that. <laughs> all right, well, let's stay in touch. Uh, and yeah, we'll catch up again soon. Take care. Okay, all the best. All right, that wraps things up for this week's episode. If you enjoyed this interview and want to find more like it, as well as articles and other resources, you can find the full library of previous podcasts at AbundantEdge.com. The best part is that you can search by category, topics, or keywords on our brand new website rather than scrolling through more than 140 interviews. I've spoken to experts on everything from growing your own food, building homes from natural materials, beekeeping, vermicompost, permaculture design techniques, and so much more. Before we go, I just want to say thank you so much to those of you who have taken the time to reach out to me via comments and emails. Your input helps a lot in making this show the open conversation and exchange of ideas that it's meant to be, and it helps me to make better content on the topics that you're interested in. If you have any insights, advice, suggestions, or questions, be sure to send them to me at info at AbundantEdge.com, and I'll look forward to being in touch. New episodes come out every Friday like clockwork, so don't forget to subscribe to the show through our website or through your favorite podcast streaming platform, and I'll catch you on next week's show.